we are ending with the most difficult lecture. This is an imp I mean, all, the, all my lectures here were impossible because they all, in a way, are a teaser for an entire course that usually, given that the university is about 12 lectures, which means 18 hours of learning, which I had to condense in an hour and 15 minutes. So, of course, and I deeply appreciate that you bear with me uh, trying to cope with so much information, history, geography, music, text, uh, different concepts uh, being thrown into you in such a condensed period of time. Uh, hopefully in some future we will be back and take the issues more into the details. And today is uh, the most difficult one because in terms of the scope, um, it only rivals with the lecture yesterday, but I think it's even more uh, complex. And uh, we were uh, talking until now about um, uh, music in relation to Jewish uh, ethnic identities uh, or, or national identities. We're talking about Eastern European Jews, when we talk about Klezmer, we talk about Sephardic music, uh, so we talk about the Sephardic Jews. You remember we were dividing what is a Sephardic Jew, what is not. And then yesterday we talked about Israelis, which are a certain type of Jews, as you know, uh, with their own idiosyncrasies and their own links uh, to, um, to the bigger picture of the Jewish people. And today, we are not speaking specifically about a group, we are speaking about a place. We are speaking about the synagogue. We are speaking about a location, a space that has been the centerpiece of uh, Jewish life and the maintenance of Jewish identity throughout the ages. What do I mean throughout the ages? Well, that depends on what scholar you ask. Usually, people see the synagogue as the continuation of the temple. The moment the second temple was destroyed, uh, the year 70 of the current era, then the synagogue starts. Well, most scholars today will tell you that that's not truth. There were places of, uh, mostly places of learning, locations, in the Galilee, in Judea, etc even hundreds of years before the destruction of the temple. So there was, in essence, for the simple logistic reason that not everybody could reach the temple or attend the temple or be there every day. So the, there was a sort of routine of meeting, particularly to learn the Torah, at least since the time of Ezra and Nehemiah, of Ezra and Nehemiahs, that people gather in places. Obviously, the destruction of the temple forced a totally new situation with the abolishment of the central place of Jewish worship, the temple. And the cessation the, uh, in uh, the sacrifices, which was a centerpiece of temple uh, uh, liturgy, and the evolution of different types of Jewish liturgy. So this big picture tells us that the synagogues evolved in a very long process. 
And not only they evolve in very long process, but they evolve under different social and historical circumstances, sometimes extremely different one from the other. And to put it in the simplest form, every synagogue for me is a microcosmos. It's a world on its own. To speak generally about all the synagogues of the world is a very risky business. <laughs> so I will give you today some snippets of sounds from different synagogues and I will try to make two important observations and this will be the main core of the teaching for today. And today I will play, in honor of the last lecture, much more music than talking. <laughs> Simply because the more I will talk about this subject, the more I will get into trouble. <laughs> so the, the, the more I leave it very general uh, and, and uh, dubious, okay, the better I will come out from here. And you will enjoy good music. Now the music, it's important and I want to tell you that I am privileged to be able to teach you and to bring all this material simply because uh, Hebrew University has put music and Jewish music as one of its main topics in the humanities. Next year we will be celebrating 50 years of the Jewish Music Research Center at Hebrew University. This is one of the longest existing institutes in the humanities in the Hebrew University. And what the center has done and still does in terms of publications uh, and documentation is tantalizing. So the National Sound Archives, from which I'm playing some of these examples, which are situated in the National Library of Israel, which was part of the Hebrew University, and now it's a sort of more independent institution, but still linked to the university. We have the National Sound Archives with 32,000 hours of recordings. That is the memory of the Jewish people, the musical memory of the Jewish people, and of the peoples of the area. You remember, yesterday I talked about the nation. So because the nation includes non-Jews, there are also recordings of Arabic, uh, Druze, uh, Cherkes, and you name traditions from, from the area. So I'm privileged I can teach, and every year that passes I can teach even more sophisticated because materials keep coming in. Of course, in the age of communication, I already play for you a couple of YouTube uh, 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 clips, and YouTube has become an amazing source. So today we are also going to watch two, three clips from, from YouTube in order to illustrate visually also the issue of the cinema. Sound and music, and this is the basic teaching for today. When you go to a synagogue, any synagogue, anywhere in the world, until very recently, you have like a symphony. And this symphony, there are many movements. And these movements includes many moments of what I call musicality, or music in the concept that we use music in general every day. But on top of that, there is a tremendous amount of other types of sound that are integral part of the synagogue. 
And that sound, which sometimes is real noise, okay, is some component which is critical to understand the Jewish aesthetics of praying. And in my opinion, my thesis is that the synagogue was not initially a very musical place. In basically, the synagogue was a combination between a house of learning, of studying, okay, and a place of worship in which real music didn't play a crucial role. In the course of the ages, starting with the 5th, 6th century, as I will show you, of the current era, music starts pouring into the synagogue from the outside. And it grows, and it grows, and it grows, and it grows, until we end in the early 20th century and throughout the 20th century, certainly today, with a service that is mostly a musical performance. But this is a very new concept. And still today, whoever goes to any traditional, we had Minyan this morning, there was a lot of noise. Okay, it wasn't music, we had a few melodies, but mostly it was noise. So this distinction of sound and music has been one of the pillars of my research in synagogue music. Okay, so uh, we have um, basic concepts of, of synagogue music. The basic concept of the, of, uh, that they use for the, for the synagogue is the concept of psalmody. Psalmody, of course, takes the word from song, but is a way of reciting a text which is a little bit more sophisticated than just reading. Okay? And I will play for you examples, don't worry about that. So, uh, we, um, uh, we have the, the issue of Salmody moving uh, into more and more of a clear-cut cantillation in later periods. That is to say, at the beginning, the, the sacred texts were performed with very simple formula, very repetitive, that had no distinction between the Te'amim as we know them today. That evolved later on. Then we have a critical point in the history of our liturgy. Because what we pray today, our prayer book, in any form, shape that you have, okay, basically is a compilation of texts that was added throughout the ages in different periods for different reasons. So the core of any service are two ancient texts. One is Kriyachma. Okay, the basic, the reading of the Shema Israel, and the second one is the Amidah, the series of uh, um, benedictions that we say at the core of the service, also very ancient text. But for example, the Psukei de Zimra that we sing, all these sounds at the beginning that allow us to get a little bit later to show, <laughs> all that appears in the service uh, only later on, starting in Babylonia in the 8th, 9th century. And this is a Jewish reaction to the rise of Karaism, of the Karaites. Because for the Karaites, they said, we don't need a prayer book. We have a prayer book, and it's called the Book of Psalms. We don't need any 
more additions. Not Amida, not nothing, the Book of Psalms. And the Book of Psalms, and this idea was so popular that around the time of Rabbi Saadia Gaon, the great Gaon of Babel, he said, the people want Psalms, we will give them Psalms. Let's start the service with a selection of Psalms. That's to show you how malleable the liturgy was through the ages. And the other crucial influence on the synagogue is the introduction of PUT, of liturgical poetry. The dramatic expansion of the Jewish liturgy in terms of text and music, starting with the Byzantine period, the idea of, of a hymn, a, a liturgical hymn, is a Christian idea that enters into the synagogue. Of course, the Christian idea is based on the Psalms. So we have a transformation, but what the, what the, the Putin, uh, uh, and, and this is, again, I gave a course on Putin last semester at Hebrew University, only on that subject, is the introduction of elements that we don't have in biblical poetry, mostly rhyme and meter. That is to say that all the lines are of the same length. Okay, that we don't have in the old biblical poetry, and this is the Byzantine influence. And then, with the pute, entered the synagogue, the foreign melodies, because these are songs to be sung, and therefore you need melodies. So, this will be my first example. Uh, one of the earliest recordings that we have of melodies entering the synagogue are Arabic melodies introduced in Babel. Uh, and, and later on in Spain. Babel is Iraq of today, in Baghdad, okay? So they take a famous Arabic tune and they sing the, the tune with the, uh, with the new pute. Now, if you were to synagogue in Baghdad in the year 800, my friends, every Shabbos there was a different text. And this is a thousand years before the reform. The, the services used to change. Because the Paitanim, the poets used to produce for every new holiday, every new Shabbat, there was the core, I mean, I want to explain this because this is very crucial. The basis of the, of the, of the building, of the building of the liturgy is always the same. You always have Shema, Amida, and the blessings, and that, that remains. What I'm saying is that texts were added. So the main place to add texts were before the Bracha of the Amida. So you said the text of the Amidah, and before you say Baruch Atah, they stick a new song in there, which is on the subject of the Bracha. So if it's Bracha, the first Bracha about Avod, it's a poem about the Avod. And therefore the service, can you imagine, was inflated and grew and grew. And the, these people composed literally thousands of poems. Of course, most of it was forgotten except for a miracle that happened to the Jewish people. And the miracle is called the Cairo Geniza. So the Cairo Geniza, this depository of uh, manuscripts, allowed scholars from the late 19th century until this very day to reconstruct this amazing world of Piyutim that was totally forgotten for the liturgy. What remained in the liturgy are the texts that became canonical. So when you have Nishmat Kol Chai, Nishmat Kol Chai is a text composed during the Talmudic period. It's a sort of song. It appears like prose, but you can put that also as a song. So these texts became fixed, but there were additions. There were times where people used to say something instead of Nishmat Kol Chai. But now it's fixed. 
since when is fixed? More or less since the 10th century, when the Jews started to codify and in a way leave the pure outside of the liturgy. So I have a nice example of you, Jews from Syria living in Brooklyn, to show you that this tradition of adding a melody to a piyut continues, but as I already transmitting to you throughout these four lectures, culture is extremely dynamic and it moves on. So let's hear this. Shiru Shirachadasha, that's the name of this edition piyut. Bismon Chiu Shira Hadasha, the national anthem of Kahal Kadosh Ahayazi, page 202, Makam Ajah. Shiru Shira Hadasha, Ledar Leromim, Lichbot Bikdash Ahayazi. You never heard that performance. And uh, uh, by the way, uh, he said something at the beginning, an announcement that I, I will go back. He said, Makam Ajam. Now this is Arabic. Makam is a scale. So he's telling this isn't the scale that in Arabic is called Ajam, which is the equivalent of the major scale as God bless America is in major scale. So, but he's conceptualizing this through Arabic music in, in Brooklyn, okay? This is an, um, uh, 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 an American born, Syrian Jew living in Brooklyn. Uh, this was recorded about 30 years ago. Something else, choirs. We always think, oh, choir is the modern period, you know, the reform period, etc. We had notices about choirs in Babylonia in the 10th century. When, when a new gaon was instituted, you know, invested, I'm sorry, that's the word, the gaon, you, to remind you, is the leader of the Jewish people in the Galut, in the diaspora. We have notices uh, in a couple of manuscripts about describing a choir of children singing psalms during the ordination. Okay, so the idea of choirs is latent all the time in the synagogue. Now, types of sound in the synagogue. First of all, there is one which I call the cloud. You know the cloud. <laughs> the cloud is with everybody's mumbling at the same time and you cannot understand anything and everybody's running fast. For me, that's part of the aesthetics of the synagogue. I, I can even analyze that as a sound. Now, the issue here is that the basic, uh, this is a basic division between church and synagogue. The basic uh, duty of praying in Judaism is on the individual. Nobody can pray in your stead. Nobody can do that for you. No priest can stand there and, and pray for you. You have to do that yourself. So the basic is that everybody has to pray. But what can you do? Not every human being is able to pray by himself. So you have the, the help of those who lead you, the Sharia Tzibur, the, the, the man or woman who leads in the congregation. But the basic pro, uh, uh, performance is by the individuals. And when you have 30, 
50, 100, 300 Jews saying the Amidah at the same time and mumbling it, so you have a cloud, which is very similar to a lot of contemporary music, if you want. <laughs> then we have Psalmody, and I will play you now a psalm performed by Moroccan Jews. This is, uh, Psalmody was quite forgotten in Ashkenaz, but it remained quite alive in uh, uh, North Africa and in the East. So this is for, for Shabbat. You know the text, so I don't even need to tell what text it is. But listen to the performance, it's very... If you ask a Moroccan Jew, they won't say that this is music. They say they are reading. Now, but we hear a little melody. But this melody is not within the concept of what is music for them. And even for you, you know, it's very repetitive, very, uh, I'm sorry, I'm once again the musicologist, but you know, the range, we have very few notes. It moves through a very, and the music, it's the rhythm is uh, uh, set by the structure of the text. So you have short and long. And the music swings a little bit because we have words with one syllable, two syllables, three syllables, and the accent falls in the first, in the second, in the third. So the, mu the, the long syllable gets a long sound and the short syllable a short. And this allows the whole community to sing. Believe me, I, this is, of course, a weekday recording. We recorded that in the studio. But if you go to a Moroccan synagogue early in Shabbat in the morning, they sing all the psalms of Sukkot Zimra like this, children, uh, adults, etc. And because they all know the pattern, they are all singing more or less together, so to speak. But still, sometimes it gets into a big mess. And I cannot even go to tell you where exactly goes into this mess, but what is amazing in this system, which consists of a melody that covers a pasuk, a versicle. And the middle cadence is, of course, the etnach, where the middle of the pasuk is. So we have the same cadence, half and end, 
half and n, half and n. But sometimes you have ta ri ra 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 la ri ra ra ri ra ra ram pa ra ra ri ra ram. You have an extension, and that extension has to do with specific te'amim, specific symbols for reading cantillation that are unique to the sound. So that means that these Jews kept in their memory for God knows how, a thousand years, fifteen hundred years, this memory of how to perform the psalms in this manner, which we call psalmody. And we believe that the Torah was chanted like that in the very ancient times. But the Torah started to differentiate more and more between the different levels of stops. The more level of stops you add, the more melody you have, and therefore the more elaborated it goes. But I will play you now the first versicles of the Bible as sung uh, among Sephardic Jews. And you are all Ashkenazi, I assume most of you except Mr. Algazi here. <laughs> and and uh, you all go uh, to, to a shul, to American shuls, even if you are not Ashkenazi, where the mainstream modern Ashkenazi version of cantillation is performed. So I want you to hear something else, and I will make a brief remark. Bereshit <laughs> Uh, what I want to say just very briefly, and uh, I'm sorry I have to move a little bit fast, I want to cover so much. This type of cantillation is a little bit strange to your ears, isn't it? It's you cannot really hear every ta'am with a melody. It's closer to psalmody. This is to show you, and if I brought you Yemenite singing, you won't hear almost anything except at nachta, middle of the verse, and sof pasuk, end of the verse. All the rest is a, a big balagan. The Ashkenazi tradition, the European tradition, and I won't go now into why, had differentiated between each time to the point of making that almost a science, where the kids are taught if they miss one sound. <laughs> <laughs> and of course, it became uh, uh, ma uh, majorized. It's in, it's in a major mode. So the aesthetics are extremely different. This is why when you ask Sephardic Jews when they are performing the Torah, is he chanting? No. Ani kore batora. I am reading. This is about reading. This is not about music. And I don't know how to convince you that the cantillation is something which originally was much closer to a pattern of reading, a structure of reading, rather than this brilliant musical performance that we expect from our bar mitzvahs and bat mitzvahs here in America. Okay? Interesting. Now, let's go into another ancient form of the synagogue, the uh, antiphonal song. Antiphonal means that 
we have a pattern of text and the pattern is divided between the, the congregation and the soloist. And here I will bring you a video from a Moroccan synagogue. It's very nice, very beautiful, from the Yamim Noraim. This is from the, this is a slichot service. This is like four in the morning, okay? You will see people are sleepy. And I want you to see a synagogue that is a little bit different, where people are not dressed up and they behave um, interestingly, uh, with a, 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 a different idea of decorum, if I may say. And this is aneinu, aneinu loy aneinu. So we have this formula, aneinu, respond to us, answer us, aneinu, Eloi Abraham, aneinu, aneinu, Eloi Yitzhak, aneinu, aneinu, Eloi Yaakov, aneinu, 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 goes, 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 This very boring type of formula, ancient poetry of the synagogue, very similar to many forms of Christian uh, liturgical poetry. The Chazan says that a little, okay, a little bit more elaborated than the public repeats all the time, and it's a formula. Again, very simple, very on the limits of musicality. The the main thing here is to deliver the text. And the Yamim Noraim, we have so much text that you cannot be musicalizing all these texts. Otherwise, even the 24 straight hours in the synagogue won't be enough to perform these texts. So many texts are performed with a great uh, uh, um, speed, okay, by these very rapid formulas. But here, something happens. And here you will see how musicalization enters on the back door, even if the, in this simple text. a little bit. He took a few more seconds. He took a little bit more of a breath. So there are two cantors. One is listening to the other. He said, oh, you added two notes. I can add four. <laughs> He added more. 
sensibilities of vocalization enters the synagogue by way of nature and start to expand this performance into a musical competition. And of course the aesthetics of this music is Moroccan classical music of which I won't say even a word but a very established tradition that the Jews are experts on. So they have ammunition to recruit for the sake of the service. Now we go to Nusach. Ari, that's what you wanted, Nusach. <laughs> now, it's impossible to define Nusach in, in this framework, and I, I won't do that. The only thing I would say is that the music, or the musicalization of the synagogue, what we heard until now, we heard styles that the organization of rhythm, it's a little bit loose and open. We, we usually, certainly today, we in the West, identified music with beat. I already said this in other lectures, but I repeat. So when you can mark the beat, we have rhythm, we have music. Many styles of the synagogue, of the sound of the synagogue, have no clear beat. So Nusach will be any type of delivery of a text that is not a song, that is not a psalmody, that is not a pattern like the Aneinu, like this responsorial or antiphonal, and it's performed by a solo cantor. And therefore, the soloist employs different techniques to deliver the text when he gets to his solo part. The main solo part will be the repetition of the Amidah, the repetition by the cantor, in which he has to deliver the text in a form that on the one hand won't be too musical, but on the other hand will have a certain essence. So I will play you a Turkish Hazara, not, I'm sorry I'm not playing almost anything Ashkenazi, because that you know. I will tell you what you don't know, okay? <laughs> Great cantor from Turkey, how it sounds, the, the Nusakh uh, in, in Turkish. Now, in, uh, the, the basis of the Nusakh eventually is some sort of modality, some sort of scales that are become, but that became in the course of time normative, so the cantors are taught to perform in these scales, and still the Nusa allows for a certain degree of creativity, of improvisation by the cantor. Okay? Now, if it is 3,000 years ago, or 2,000 years ago, or 1,000 years ago, you can tell that Professor Serusi from Hebrew University says that he doesn't know. But certainly, we have notices of Nusach, or talk about Nusach, at least since the 15th century, in Europe.
Okay? In the Arab world, in, the, in Islam, since the 16th century, that we know that there is something called Nusrat because Cantor speak about that. We don't have recordings, and if you remember, no musical notations, no music written down. So everything that we know about the past hundreds of years is what people sing today, what the memory has kept. We have to live with that. Adonai sefatai tiftal Ufi agim teilatecha Ufi agim teilatecha Baruch atamunai Baruch baruch shemo Eloheinu veloi avoteinu Okay. I know it's beautiful. This goes forever. Okay. But I just wanted you to taste a little bit. First of all, notice what happens here. In the Sephardic traditions, there are uh, responsorial elements within the Amidah too. So the public repeats as a choir in the repetition. I mean, the public doesn't need to enter here. But the public intervenes, and there are several dialogues embedded. And this is a very old oral tradition. So this is the Nusach. The cantor knows how to deliver this. You see that there is also a little bit of interpretation. When we are talking about the El, the, the, the God, so he takes a little bit of an expansion of what he say, of the of the melody in order to stress the concept. So, but otherwise, by the way, this is a little bit slow because this, again, this is a studio recording for uh, purposes of documentation. Usually he will do that much, much faster, but still he will keep the same formula. And you can see that, and this is true also for Nusach Ashkenaz, embedded in this very open and freely improvisatory form is psalm psalmody. Eventually, if you take it down, you will have a psalmodic formula. What I said, this melody divided into two, okay? It's embedded here. But then, Nusach Ari got out of control. And the cantors wanted to expand it even more. That's how we end with Hazanut. So Hazanut is just Nusach, but Nusach expanded into a real piece of music, okay? And uh, we are going to hear a great recording, just a few bars <coughs> from Aleinu, from the High Holidays, performed by uh, an incredible man, uh, Daniel Goldschmidt, Dr. Daniel Goldschmidt, who uh, came to Israel from Germany in 1938, barely made it out. And he was one of the greatest researchers of Jewish liturgy. He was no cantor. He only prayed in his own shul in Jerusalem. 
So just to show you how great Hazanud can be without a professional performer, okay? By the way, we assume that this Alainu melody is one of the oldest ones in the Ashkenazi repertoire, going back perhaps to the 12th century, okay? of Nusach, and eventually what will happen to Hazanut in the late 19th century, only in Europe, is that it will be taken out from the synagogue. The value of the music by itself is detached from the liturgy into the concert hall. So this is when we have Hazanut recorded as music, as a piece that you enjoy the musical performance of the great cantor, and not as a, as a part, an integral part of a liturgy. And of course, the moment you do outside in, um, during the week or, you know, uh, not in Shabbat, you can use musical instruments. I even didn't mention the fact that the musical instruments in the synagogue are not part of the, um, of the uh, aesthetics until well <laughs> entered the um, 17th century. I will tell you that we have uh, organs in synagogues in Prague in the 17th century. Yeah, this uh, very few people know, except some of the Haredim, who in their responses about the use of instruments in the synagogue, they say all this thing in Prague is a misunderstanding. <laughs> it wasn't. But we have, we even have the names of one of the donors of one of these organs for the synagogue. But the, the, but the organ was played mostly in weddings, in celebrations, not in Shabbat, but there was an organ in the synagogue. But uh, obviously, with the 19th century, instrumental music with the reform movement starts to get uh, as an integral part of the synagogue. Now, my last uh, genre, if you want, of synagogue music is strophic songs. So strophic songs is really a tune. A tune, something that all the congregation, uh, or the solo and the congregation can sing, and this is mostly identified as music. So here we move really into music and many of these songs come again from the outside and many come from the inside from Jewish composers most of whom 
we don't have their names anymore, but certainly they did. But here I will bring you a song that many of you know because it made it to America too. But you will hear now a cantor from the community of Casale Monferrato in Italy, in, in, uh, in northern Italy. Uh, we have amazing recordings of the Italian cantors that survived the Holocaust. They were done in the 1950s and the initiative of the Italian radio. And uh, they recorded in all these little villages where there were Jewish communities. I always tell here American Jews, say, oh, we are so few. The, in Italy, most Jewish communities consisted of 20 families in these little towns. So before these little towns disappeared, the synagogues today are still there. They are all museums, okay, that you can visit. The Jews went to the big cities. They used to have, so all the Jews from the area of Casale live in Torino today. But, uh, but they had this memory. And here we're going to hear Ms. Morle David once again. And uh, I, you will raise your hand if you know this melody, because it's performed in America too. Ms. Morle David. Okay. I'm sorry, I, I, I have to skip. Here you have an interesting case, how music is made to the synagogue. I happen to know the name of the composer, and I even happen to have found the original score of the composer, because he wrote it down in music and notation. Michele Bolaffi, you never heard about him, he was an Italian Jewish Sephardic composer from the city of Livorno, which is on the Adriatic uh, Sea, I think, um, uh, about three, four hours north of Rome. And he was the Kapellmeister. How do you say that in English? The master of the synagogue. There was a magnificent Portuguese, Spanish-Portuguese synagogue in Livorno. And he was the, the, the musician. And he composed pieces for the choir. Uh, we're going to hear one more piece before the end from the choir of Livorno. And he composed this Miss Morley David for voice and cembalo. So we have this for voice and cembalo. Now, how did this melody become so folklorized? Well, because Livorno was a hub. You have to understand there are certain Jewish cities like Levov, Lemberg, usually cities that have two requirements, a big yeshiva and a big printing press, Hebrew printing press. So everybody comes to Livorno to print the books. At the time, you know, no, no attachments uh, to the computer files. So <laughs> you have to take the, sh the thing in the boat and get from, let's say, from Egypt or from Turkey, from Izmir, take the boat to Livorno with the manuscript, print it there. It takes two, three years. Meanwhile, you are in the city. You attend the synagogue. So all these immigrants 
brought these melodies from Livorno to North Africa, to the Middle East. We have this with Molle David documented in Jerusalem in 1910, also in musical notation. So it was already there, it was famous. And if you remember the mistake I made yesterday, this Mr. Moishe Nathanson, he brought this Miss Molle David to America and printed here, and then it started to circulate in Reconstructionist and then in, in uh, Conservative and Reform synagogues. And today, if you look in the uh, in the pub American publications, it's written anonymous faulty. Okay, the composer is forgotten. Only Professor Serusi knows, and, <laughs> and nobody reads Professor Serusi's article, so they keep saying that. And Mr. and the Bolafi family doesn't get any royalties for a tune that is so beloved uh, throughout the Jewish world. But never mind. Never. They don't complain. Okay. How much time do we have? All the time you want. All the time I want. Okay. Let's listen towards the end more modern music. So now music is making it into the synagogue. It's triumphant. It's taking over more texts and more uh, professionalization of the staff of the synagogue. So the Sheliach Sibur is not anybody who can lead in prayer, but he's a cantor, and this cantor is selected. He has to have qualifications, a good voice, no music, know how to read music. The choirs are introduced, and then the reform movement introduces the, uh, the, um, uh, instru the instruments, the organ, and then all the rest. So it becomes a big chef. Music becomes a big synagogue. Let me play for you, for your enjoyment. Music, the one of the synagogues that had classical music from the Baroque, you see Baroque and classical music styles, the cantors love Baroque music. There is a lot of Baroque music embedded in many synagogues. Uh, tunes, even in some Hasidic tunes come from the Baroque uh, uh, dancing halls in Germany, but I won't go into that right now. Just to tell you that one of the synagogues that had a magnificent musicality was the great Spanish-Portuguese synagogue in Amsterdam. Whoever goes to Amsterdam, this is the place to go. This is this amazing synagogue that was founded in 1675 and functions to this very day. It's a huge temple. And, uh, <coughs> and uh, these Spanish-Portuguese Jews, if you remember, I mentioned them in the two days ago, they were, uh, how can I say, very well-educated Europeans. They were not only good Jews, but they also knew and loved music of their period. They, were, they, they used to sponsor concerts in their home. Okay, and imagine this is the music of the time of Bach and Handel and all these composers. So they commissioned composers to write for their liturgy or for the special occasions music for the Jewish synagogue. So we're going to hear Kola Neshamate Alelia by no less than a man called Cristiano Lidarti, <laughs> who was one of the composers, beloved composers of the uh, Spanish Portuguese uh, congregation.
that's a synagogue you want to go. Ah, that's a synagogue we want to go. We have such a singer, such beautiful, and fine music. Now, many of the pieces have instrumental accompaniment and they, and they were performed outside the synagogue because the synagogue didn't allow instrumental music to be performed on holidays on Shabbat. So the cantors picked up on these classical melodies and they performed that without any musical accompaniment. So I will play you a piece. This is an historical reconstruction, one of uh, Marlena Firstman's students from JTS that we gave them an assignment to have a Spanish-Portuguese service based on the manuscripts of the community that nobody knows except us, that the cantors wrote down in little uh, booklets their melodies so that they will remember. They already knew musical notation. So this is one of the few cases where we have the musical notation. So this is a Kaddish, okay? performed by an American student out of our research at the Hebrew University. It's a cantor now. What? It's a cantor now. It's a cantor. Oh. Uh, I think he's graduated. They are cantors now. They are well, yeah. How far back does that come? Yikadal ve'yikadash So you see that <coughs> you could hear a Handel aria in the synagogue, in the Kaddish. So the Kaddish and the Kedusha are two texts that become what, uh, what I call the vessel for musicalization. Because you have so many Kaddishim, you know, hundreds and thousands every year. If you want to distinguish, this is a, a Kaddish for the Shalosh Regalim. The cantor wrote a special composition for the three holidays for Passover, Shavuot, and Sukkot. And the, and, and, uh, the uh, composition sounds like an aria from a Baroque uh, opera. Because that's the way of embellishing the Kaddish with music. The Kaddish is musicalized. Usually we say it's Gadal, that's it. But in, in the holiday, you want a nice aria. And this is what we have here. If you go to the synagogue in Amsterdam, in front of this huge Jewish temple is a huge Calvinist church. And the Jews in these areas of, uh, of uh, Reformed Christianity absorb that. So I will play you another piece from the synagogue. This is a piyut, Hishki Hishki, by Abraham Caceres. Here we have a, a real Jewish composer. But what style he chose for this liturgical piece? He choose the Protestant chorale. So it's not the opera, but the church inside the cinema. Listen to a few bars, it's very beautiful. Wow. <laughs> 
synagogue that sounds like that. Okay? Now, when I play this, uh, particularly in Israel, this is very interesting. The student says, this is Christian music. So the idea of, uh, of having, I mean, you in America are much more advanced. You are much more tolerant of different musical styles. In Israel, the secular Jews, they think that all the synagogues are orthodox. And therefore, anything I play that is not within that classical sound of the synagogue that I played the examples before, sounds like Christian. But this is, if I, I, I want just to start recapitulating my main points here. The Jewish musical experience. This is the Jewish musical experience of Jews in the Baroque era in Amsterdam. They have the musical sensibility for the music of the period. They want to use the music of the period for their own purposes, for their own edification, for their own proudness of being such a successful Jewish community as these Jews were in the 18th century. Great businessmen, great. You know, these are the Jews who invented the stock exchange, by the way, in Amsterdam. That's where we got that. So these were really well-educated, prominent Jews, and this was the music they wanted to hear. They didn't want to hear the mumble. They don't want the cloud. They don't want the psalmody. They don't want this, you know, they want real music. Let me go now and uh, towards the end, the reform movement I already mentioned. Uh, 1818 is just the symbolic founding of the first synagogue a reform synagogue in Hamburg, okay? And uh, that synagogue um, uh, remained active until, uh, until the war, until uh, 1938. The music that the reform movement wanted at the beginning, it went through different uh, stages. But the reform movement understood that if you want a totally new Judaism, you need a totally new music. And therefore, they cut the, the original Hamburg temple. They just threw away everything. And they brought in two things. Protestant chorales, usually in German, few in Hebrew. And listen to this. This is interesting. They wanted something which is authentically, historically Jewish. So they bought a Spanish-Portuguese cantor to their synagogue. Because for them, the old Jewish music was all the Ashkenazi stuff, but the Sephardic stuff is authentic. You remember the issue of authenticity? So <laughs> embedded in the early Reformed music is Sephardic music. And, of course, German music. Then we have a second stage where they got a little bit more tolerant and they went back. You know, the Reform movement starts with this very left wing and then since then, move slowly towards uh, the middle ground. So I'll play you just a few bars to show you that the reform movement influenced also the Orthodox synagogue. So this interaction between the different types of synagogues in Europe, in Germany particularly, between 1820 and 1870 is very interesting because the reform movement attracted young people through music. Did you ever heard that story here in America? Okay, the music will bring the people back to the cinema. So the Orthodox, the modern Orthodox people in Germany, they didn't want to say, give up the, the field. So they brought also music. So here you have a sort of uh, reform uh, uh, piece 
but from the synagogue in Frankfurt, which was nothing but reform, but it was a very modern orthodox uh, synagogue. And now we have, for this period, all the music. Because they not only wrote down the music, but they printed it. So we have books of Jewish liturgical music. So now music conquers us also through scores that are printed, and everybody can have a score. Not only the cantor with his little uh, notebook, but everybody can buy the music. particularly this German music transmits this sense of decorum, of we are proud of being Jewish, but we are proud of being German, and we are proud to be good Germans, good, well-educated Germans. And this tune, composed by Mr. Yefet, who was the cantor for 30, 40 years there in the 19th century, is still, was still remembered. We recorded this as an oral tradition. Once again, not many people knew who wrote the tune. It became a folk tune. So this is how we believe tune centered the synagogue even in previous periods for which we don't have any documentation. And the final chapter of the musicalization of the synagogue is the synagogue as an opera stage. Not sage, but stage. I'm sorry. <laughs> but it works out well. The influence of opera on the synagogue is overwhelming. And uh, it's, uh, it's a European story that goes through and through Europe, from Western Europe to Eastern Europe. That is to say, the power of the music to convey emotions as it is represented in the opera conquered the cantors who recruited the same tools to move their public in the cinema. And you well know that many cantors were in between the synagogue and the opera stage. And some of them abandoned the synagogue for the opera stage. Some of them abandoned a great opera, operatic career for the synagogue. Also, the choirs start to be more and more not members of the congregation, but singers recruited from the opera houses. And therefore, we have now professional 
performances of great power, of great emotional power. But what happened, my friends, to the congregation? The congregation is mute. We go to a show. We don't participate in it. Okay? So let me play you two, three examples, and we finish with this. Uh, again, I won't play you. I had a, a beautiful Torah service uh, by Moritz Deutsch from Breslau. I will skip. It's too long. But let me play you opera from Italy and from France. French opera and Italian opera, and this entered the synagogues in Paris and in Livorno, okay? So the first piece by a great uh, uh, Jewish composer, Emilio Na. By the way, this man was uh, a professor at the Conservatoire in Paris in the 19th century. So he was a professor of composition, and he was the Kapellmeister of one of the synagogues. So he wrote also music, and in mid-19th century France, my friend, the thing was Le Grand Opera. That's it. Okay, they lived, they breathed. He wrote operas too. Um, and uh, an interesting detail about <laughs> Jonah, he was a friend of Mr. Sachs. Mr. Sachs is the one who invented the saxophone. So Jonas wrote the first concerto for saxophone and orchestra in the 19th century. But that's that nothing to do. I don't know why I said that. <laughs> because all what I'm playing for you, many of, uh, many of the pieces were never recorded until I put them back on the stage. In my dwellings all around the world, my condition is, is that I am invited by a major university to give a series of lectures, I want a concert. And I will send you the music and you will put people to work on the music. So the example that we heard before from Frankfurt is the choir of Beit Sedek, of the synagogue of Beit Sedek, with Cantor Spiro in Toronto. They invited me for a series of lectures on music of the German synagogues, and I told them, you will work for me. So they did this magnificent recording, and I'm rounding all around the world with this recording. And this, the Jonas piece, believe it or not, this is the choir of the University, State University of Ohio in Columbus. I, I gave a, a series of lectures, and you would see this eight-piece choir of Asian and black American students singing <laughs> that was an amazing performance. And I have these precious recordings by the University of Ohio Chamber Choir. So that's it. And, uh, and they, in the same concert, they performed music from Livorno, from Italy. 
So this is Igdal Elohim Chai by a great Jewish composer, totally unknown, David Garcia or Garcia, and he wrote hundreds of pieces for the choir. Now, the choir in Livorno could not be accompanied by an instrument. This is a sort of orthodox community. So all the music is written for three parts, not for four parts, for three parts. So it's a little bit thin in terms of the structure. And the three parts were, there was a bass, usually one person, okay? A few tenors and children. The three, these were the three voices. So here you have uh, Garcia, and you will hear Garcia, but in fact, you're hearing Rossini. Speaking through his voice.
Koda. You want to hear your period. <laughs> That's the only one you need me to teach you. Okay. But let me tell you this, that, uh, that um, the idea of having the choir singing opera in the synagogue uh, uh, allows, of course, uh, to other uh, interpretations, like having a gospel choir in the... never do that. I had two pieces to end, but I will play your piece so that you will be satisfied. Uh, the total musicalization of the synagogue. If we have, if, if I have more time, I would play you something which is just a, a um, the, the, what I think is one of the, the peaks of synagogue music. But let's hear something American, an American piece, and I have some observations on that piece too, coming from the lecture of yesterday, actually. So the total musicalization of the synagogue is a 20th century affair that we want to hear a tune with every single text. And we are not willing to allow time for other types of recitation or clouds or psalmody or whatever. So uh, a great American Jewish uh, composer of synagogue music, I'll play a piece, and I will say a few remarks about that. preparing this for you and to say what kind of example so be David Friedman I have to say a word otherwise I will be fired or perhaps I, <laughs> perhaps perhaps I won't be paid I don't know so I said you know but listening to this piece uh, something is amazing this piece for me is so Israeli Israeli pop and I start to say, well, this is basically what she's doing is Arzalinu, Arzalinu. Okay, 
If you remember yesterday the rhyme that I taught you, okay? That's the same scale she has here. And she has also the syncopation, which is very characteristic of the aura, and so on and so forth. And the way she sings now strikes me like most of the Israeli female crooners of the 70s. All of a sudden, the first time now here in Southern California, I started to hear Debbie Friedman differently, with a different ear, more actually towards Israeli influences rather than a pure American phenomenon. I want to tell you that when Debbie Zichronali when she died two years ago, I was teaching my Jewish music class at Hebrew University, which I teach every three years, and I brought an example from her. The students absolutely told me that they never heard of this name. Never. They didn't hear a single song by her, never heard about her, and they thought that the music is so kitsch, how can such a music be performed in the synagogue? And they are all secular. Okay? But how can you do that in the synagogue? So that shows you the paradoxes that I was talking yesterday about Israeli culture. You see, I'm trying to fit all the lectures that we gave into one, uh, uh, into one model to see how things are related to each other. So I could go on and on, believe me, this is a real tour de force, but I think that Ari, uh, you want to say something, and then if you, if you have three minutes, I'll play you an amazing musical composition coming right before the Holocaust uh, from a composer that perished in the Holocaust, and uh, it's just such beautiful music to see you that synagogue music can be great music by any artistic standard. So, Arya, please. Arya, No? I don't have much to say other than thank you all for coming to our four-part series. I hope you'll support CSP. I hope to see you at our Jewish Gospel Shabbat. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Incorporating different music. I think we're turning to gospel. Most synagogues in the future will be singing gospel. <laughs> I, I am no prophet uh, whatsoever, but... <laughs> the melodies that we have for Enkeloino are German. And uh, they are German folk songs, if it's a beer song, but the one which is really a beer, in my opinion, a beer song, it sounds silly, like, you know, every time I hear, and, and we publish a recording of this, performed actually by Hasidim, but it's performed here in America too with the Kedusha. Uh, Marlena, can you just tell me? Lai, 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 you can see the German beer. That's a real German German style. I thought you meant this one. Okay. Now I will end with a piece by a composer Samuel Lampel from Leipzig, the Uber cantor of Leipzig. 
uh, an incredible composer uh, who, who continued, even after Kristallnacht, he continued to maintain the synagogue. They moved him out of the synagogue. He continued at home until he was arrested from home and taken to the camps. This is Matovu, performed by the Beit Sedek uh, uh, Synagogue of Toronto with Cantor Spiral, just to leave you to some uplifting piece. Matovu Alecha Yaakov, this is the beginning of the service, which became also this text, which usually used to be said in a very, you know, uh, not in a very festive manner, in the German synagogues, this is the overture, this is where we start. So the compositions, of course, all of you know the Matovu by Lewandowski, which is the one that is uh, better known around the world. Matobu, Matobu, If you remember, Mira, the Israeli radio used to open at 6 a.m. its broadcast with this piece by Lewandowski. The secular state of Israel used to open the news 6 a.m. with Lewandowski. But <laughs> okay. I think, uh, Brenda? I play this also because the piece has influence by Wagner. Interesting.
late today, um, but if you have a few quick questions. Yeah, yeah. If you would like to stay for, for, for a few quick questions, please do. If you need to run, please run. We'll take about uh, two or three questions. We got first hand over here, Howard, then we'll have David and uh, Howard. Yeah. Um, some of the Psalms in particular have in their text instructions that look like musical instructions, like on the Shigonon yeah. and so forth. Yeah. Has any of that music? No. We have no idea. No idea. No idea. No, no idea. Survived into no idea. Music. I can give you a very good article. For 50 pages about them. Oh. That after you read the 50 pages, you have no idea. <laughs> yeah. David. Uh, in particular, in view of your last piece, that you're, where would you put Aaron's Bloch's Avodat Kodesh? Oh, okay. Well, um, you know, the piece, uh, although what's commissioned by the synagogue, okay, it's uh, first of all the, one of the best examples of my thesis that the service became an entire musical piece. So the piece is the service, and the service is the piece at the same time. That will be like one of the best examples for the peak of my argument, okay? Um, now, I won't go now into statistic issues, etc. the choices he made, but certainly is uh, one of the major achievements in this trend of musicalization of the city. Yes? The uh, music archives that you were speaking about, are, are, are they available for other people to Yes, to it's a very interesting question. The music archive of the National Library is available online, with the only problem that, uh, first of all, not the 32,000 hours are available, although the 32,000 hours were digitized through a huge grant of the Legacy Foundation here in the United States, the Wexner family. So uh, uh, everything is digitized, but there are only uh, 2,000 hours online. I hope that's enough. And, uh, but to, to access that, you have to get to the website, just the National Library of Israel, NLI. And then you have to, uh, there is a banner there of the National Sound Archives. And I hope it works. It's brand new. This service is brand new and still being made. So. There are a few glitches, but uh, certainly there is a lot. And if you come to Jerusalem, you're most welcome to the National Library. You can hear the 32,000 hours <laughs> if you have some time spent. Thank you very much. Thank you.